worship with you. Grateful for this opportunity, and my wife Barb is with me as well, so thank you for that. We are just <clears throat> uh, six days away from the 49th uh, anniversary of the uh, notorious 1973 Supreme Court decisions, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, which together effectively legalized abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy here in the United States. Of course, as you know, few issues have divided our nation more bitterly than the subject of abortion. Our entire nation, I think, or at least an awful lot of us are on edge as we um, await the Supreme Court ruling on the Dobbs versus Mississippi case, which was, has already been heard and should be ruled on or should be that should be at least um, uh, reported on in June. So um, that, of course, has the potential, that, that case, Dobbs versus Mississippi, has the, the potential, if the Supreme Court justices rule correctly on it, to overturn Roe v. Wade and to send the, um, the debate back to the states. Now, even if that happens, or let me say it this way, regardless of what happens, regardless of how they rule on that, uh, there, this is bound to result in even greater division in our land. And sadly, an awful lot, um, much of the church has remained silent on the subject of abortion now for these past five decades, which has um, largely contributed to the division that now plagues us as a nation. I am thankful for Pettisville Missionary Church, uh, for Pastor Kent and for your pastoral leadership and elders. Um, I'm grateful for a church that has not shrunk back from giving voice to the voiceless. Um, you are blessed. I trust that you know that. I don't say that just to be kind. I think where a pastor stands on the issue of abortion says an awful lot about where he stands on God's word and where he stands on his love for Christ and for his people. And when I say where a pastor stands, I don't mean positionally. As you know, an awful lot of pastors today will say that they are pro-life, but in reality, a, a small number of those, a small percentage of those are actually speaking out boldly on it. In other words, not just being positionally pro-life, but being passionately pro-life, and your pastors are. So I'm grateful to, to um, Pastor Kent and the leadership here for that. I hope this morning to bring clarity and grace to this very difficult subject and to do so by addressing questions that perhaps are lingering in some of your minds. Questions like, what does the Bible teach about the nature of the embryo, the unborn child? What kind of issue is abortion for the local church? And also, is it even possible for the local church to be a thundering protective voice for the unborn while at the same time being uh, or nurturing a um, safe, redemptive, grace-extending community for those who have had abortions or have been responsible for them. Now, I want to do this. I want to, to uh, bring clarity and grace to these questions this morning by addressing six myths that are commonly held, um, even within the church, that have caused so much um, of the church over these last five decades to go silent. Now, before I do that, though, I want to say something else that's very important here. I realized this morning that I am undoubtedly speaking to some who have had abortions or have been responsible for them. And I know if that's you, this will be a particularly, particularly difficult message to hear um, because some of what I'm going to say is going to be very difficult for you to hear. And I trust that you understand that I need to say these things, that to be faithful to God's word and to be faithful to the unborn, I need to speak directly to this subject, which I intend to do. 
At the same time, I intend to do this redemptively. And if you have had an abortion or have been responsible for one, I'm just asking you this morning to sort of bear with me through a lot of this. I promise you, um, on my last point here this morning, I want to speak directly to you about God's grace and hope and forgiveness. And so bear with me as, as, we, as we travel through this here this morning. Let me share the first of these six commonly held myths that have largely silenced the church now over these past five decades. The first one, and I'm going to spend the most time on this one. We'll go more rapidly through the next five. But the first one is that we hear occasionally, even from some of our own brothers and sisters in Christ, that the Bible is silent about abortion. Now, it is true that nowhere does the Old or New Testament refer to the word abortion. That word is never mentioned in anywhere in our Bibles. Um, but this, this idea that the Bible is therefore silent because the word abortion is not used is built on a fault, faulty assumption. And the assumption is that whatever the Bible does not expressly condemn, it therefore condones. But just think how ridiculous that is. Because nowhere does your Bible condemn the torturing of puppies or pouring toxins into our rivers. And, we, and yet we know God condemns those things. Why? Because we know this by inference. Because God has called us to steward that which he has created. So we don't need a Bible verse that condemns torturing puppies to know that torturing puppies is wrong. So too, we don't need a Bible verse um, that explicitly condemns abortion to know that abortion is wrong. I like what Francis Beckwith, pro-life author and apologist Francis Beckwith said. He said, the Bible is not silent on the subject of abortion any more than it is silent on the subject of suffocating somebody with a pillow. And I think that's well said. Let me share just three quick sub-points to this first um, commonly held myth that might help um, us think this through. First of all, the Bible clearly and, and frequently condemns murder. Exodus 20, verse 3, or th verse 13, I believe it is. You shall not murder. Couldn't be any more clear. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 17 says, There are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. And then, of course, he shares several others. Hands that shed innocent blood. The demonic practice of sacrificing one's children to the fires of Molech, the false god in the Old Testament, is condemned in multiple passages, such as Deuteronomy chapter 18, 2 Kings chapter 16, and Ezekiel chapter 20, just to name a few. There are several others, by the way. Now, only the most debased societies practiced child sacrifice. The prophets warned that doing so would, would surely result in bringing God's wrath and judgment upon their nation. And in fact, so vile was this abomination of sacrificing children to Molech that God held even those who refused to intervene guilty. In Leviticus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, we read, if the people of the community close their eyes when that man gives one of his children to Molech and they fail to put him to death, I will set my face against that man and his family and will cut off from their people both him and all who follow him in prostituting themselves to Molech. Very strong words, aren't those? Secondly, the Bible consistently treats the unborn child, the embryo, the zygote, as a distinct living and whole human being. Both Old and New Testament writers treat the unborn child as a distinct living and whole human being. In Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, King David is referring to his embryonic self. In other words, he's identifying himself as an embryo, okay? 
He says this, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, the, the, key, the key there in that, the, the takeaway here is that he said, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Now you knit something together that later became me, morphed into me, gestated into me, but you knit me together in my mother's womb. He does the same thing, by the way, in Psalm 51, after he has committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he's now repentant, and he's broken before God, and he's confessing the sin, and he says, in sin my mother conceived me, not someone who later became me. Now, this is no small thing, if you believe that God's word is God's word, if you believe that the word of God is inspired, God is the great communicator. Through his writers, he's very particular about the words that are used here. We also see in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the New Testament, in Luke's Gospel, chapter one, a remarkable um, passage where Mary and Elizabeth are both pregnant. Mary is, Mary is pregnant with Jesus, who at this point is only days or weeks old inside of Mary's womb. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, who Greg Kokel refers to at this point as John the fetus. And she is pregnant, or John's development is at about six months, the, the scripture tells us here in this passage. But this remarkable exchange takes place between these two babies and these two women when Mary shows up at the home of, of, of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth to visit. We read these words. Look at verse 41 and following with me here. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, that's the Greek word brephos, used of both babies in the womb and out of the womb, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb, the brephos in my womb leaped for joy. This is a remarkable account because we have Luke, the historian, referring to the unborn baby as a brephos, and we've got uh, Elizabeth referring to the baby as a baby. Now, I don't think this is very compelling to non-Christians who are not interested in our Bible. I don't think it's compelling at all to them. But it ought to be very compelling to you and I, to anyone here who is a follower of Jesus Christ. This ought not to only compel us to believe in the full biological humanity of the unborn child, but we should be moved to action. Think of um, the incarnation. Uh, John chapter one, where we read the word, Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the, that's the miracle and the mystery of the incarnation. And the miracle and the mystery of the incarnation is not that Jesus Christ became the son of God at birth, but that he became the son of God at conception. Otherwise, what's so remarkable about the incarnation, right? He, in other words, we hear from the other side, well, the unborn baby is only a potential person. Well, that would render Jesus at this stage of his development as only a potential son of God, which would be complete heresy. Now, again, I get that non-Christians are not inspired by, by this, but we ought to be. Now, most evangelical Christians, as well as most Catholics, accept the full consensus of the, the biological humanity of the unborn child at day one as a single-cell zygote. And yet many of these same professing Christians remain unmoved by the plight of the unborn. And sadly, many of our churches in this land today have an awful lot in common with the abortionist or the abortion industry because both in these cases see the unborn child as miserably inconvenient. For the abortionist, this becomes the justification to dismember, decapitate, and disembowel the unborn child. 
And for many, many churches and many professing Christians, this has become the justification to do absolutely nothing as the abortionist dismembers, decapitates, and disembowels the unborn child. Abortion, and I, and I want to encourage you to think of it this way, is a method of killing innocent human beings. It's just a method of killing innocent human beings. We do not need a Bible verse that expressly says, you shall not murder people in this method that we call abortion. Any more again, than we would need a Bible verse that says, thou shall not suffer your neighbor with a pillow. We don't need that. We simply need to know that the Bible is very clear about the subject of murder and about the nature of the unborn child. And just as we don't need a Bible verse explicitly condemning the method of murder that we call abortion, so too, we don't need a Bible verse that explicitly states what class of human beings we can't murder. For instance, we don't have a Bible verse that says, thou shall not murder Hispanics, or thou shall not murder people born in February. So too, we don't need a Bible verse that says, thou shall not murder small, tiny people who are located in their mother's wombs. We don't need that. Thirdly, the Bible commands us to intervene on behalf of those unjustly targeted for death. Just a couple of examples. Proverbs 31, verse 8. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Proverbs 24, verse 11. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? We could go on, we could talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan. We have a moral duty to our neighbors. Again, whether that neighbor has been beaten and abandoned in a ditch, as in the case of the parable of the Good Samaritan, or has been denied legal protection and abandoned in the womb. Let me move to the second one, and again, we'll go more quickly through these. Number two, another commonly held myth, again, even within many churches, is that abortion is a political issue, and therefore off limits for the church, that the church should stay out of politics. We hear this often. Perhaps no argument has done more to paralyze the church's influence than this one. While many outside of the church view abortion as merely a religious uh, issue, many within the church view it as merely a political issue. But what, but, but what, most, but, but what mo both of those groups have in common is that they would like pro-life Christians to stop talking and caring about the unborn. Yes, Abortion is a political issue. There's no denying it. But it is much more accurate to describe it as a moral spiritual issue that has been politicized. And when you think about it, every moral issue is eventually politicized. War, slavery, in recent years, the redefining of marriage. Are those things off limits for the church too? Is the pastor to go silent on the redefining of marriage because it's been politicized? If so, then pastors like Dietrich Bonhoeffer Charles Finney and Vernon Johns, who railed against the persecution of Jews, against slavery, and against Jim Crow laws, were guilty of sticking their noses where they didn't belong. Today, in countries like Iran and North Korea, the gospel itself has been politicized. Some could argue, and I think make a good argument, that it's being politicized in the United States, but certainly in Iran and North Korea, the gospel is politicized. Pastors who declare it are persecuted and sometimes executed for having done so. Do they sin? when they refuse to be silenced about this politicized issue? Of course not. The apostles spoke to this issue for us very clearly. In Acts chapter 4, you know the story, I'm sure most of you, where Peter and John and, and the disciples were out preaching in the name of Christ and they've been called in by the Sanhedrin and basically uh, you know, uh, you know, read the riot act about you're not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. 
So they've been called back in here in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John. They're before the Sanhedrin, and they're being told again not to do this. And Peter and John boldly respond, judge for yourselves whether or not it is right to obey you rather than God. To be clear, pastors should protect their churches from evolving into political machines. Placing our hope in politicians and in temporary political solutions rather than in God is idolatry. To do so also ignores our greatest need, which is internal and not external. I like what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 33, verses 16 and 17, or in verse 17. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. So too, political leaders, politicians, are a vain hope for deliverance. However, it does not follow from this that the political realm should therefore be denied our influence. As theologian Abraham Kuyper famously wrote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, that is mine. Jesus Christ is Lord of my wallet, of my finances. He is Lord of my role as a husband. He is Lord of my, role, my wife and I's role as parents. He is Lord of our sexuality, and he is Lord of our vote. We are to be salt and light in our culture, and God calls us to use whatever influence we can to love our neighbor and to see that our neighbor, especially those most vulnerable, are protected by our laws. As Christians, I know that we are sometimes criticized by some of our own brothers and sisters in Christ for being so-called single-issue voters because we refuse to vote for politicians who deny the unborn their most fundamental right, the right to life. But this criticism completely misses the point. Thoughtful Christians care deeply about many issues, but they recognize that the legal destruction of precious unborn children, God's image bearers, they recognize that as the single most pressing or most important issue, and one that should be given greater moral weight when deciding which candidate to support. Now, this is not ultimately an issue of partisanship. It is an issue of lordship. Let me move to the third. And that is that we hear occasionally that abortion is just one of many issues. That, that, that the church could certainly find better ways to use its time. Now this is a rather cold response to legalized child killing. Suppose we weren't talking about 2,400 unborn children dying every day legally under the banner of choice. Suppose instead we were talking about 2,400 toddlers dying legally every day in the United States with virtually no outcry, or maybe that's not, safe, not, not fair to say, but very little outcry from most churches. Um, would anyone think that arguing against toddler killing as being the primary or the defining moral issue would, would be wrong? Nobody would say that. Nobody would say, well, there's a better way to use our time. The objection that rescuing children from the abortionist knife is a distraction from the gospel is a scandal. The disciples were rebuked for such pernicious thinking. You'll remember when the, the children were trying to come to Jesus and the disciples were saying, get away, get away. And Jesus said, suffer the children to come unto me. Far from a distraction from the gospel, speaking up for the unborn is the gospel in action. This is what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's easy for those who have never actually seen abortion to argue this way. Those who see abortion merely as abstract or whatever. But abortion is the intentional and unjust killing of innocent human beings in their most vulnerable stage of development. 
in the most barbaric manner imaginable. Again, abortion dismembers, decapitates, disembowels, or burns a child from his or her mother's womb. Or now, 40% of abortions being performed are chemical or pill abortions. In 1991, my wife Barb and I were living in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I was pastoring a church there at the time. And we were very involved in the pro-life community. And through that involvement, we met a young man named Tim. And of course, I was a young man then, but he was a young man, he was younger than me, a young guy named Tim. And Tim had rifled through the dumpster behind an abortion clinic in Detroit, my hometown. And he had lifted from that dumpster a little baby girl about four and a half, five months of gestation. She had been aborted by a saline solution abortion, which means that her body was still perfectly intact. She was beautiful, except for the fact that she was lifeless. Tim's intent was to fulfill the command of Ephesians 5.11, which commands the church to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Tim's intent was to photograph this baby and show her to the world, which he did. In fact, I have a photo of that baby hanging in my office today. His other intent was to give that baby a proper burial, which he also did. But before that happened, Barb and I were in a Bible study in our home with about, I don't know, eight or ten others. And we had that little girl in our possession for just that morning. And we held her lifeless body on a cloth diaper. And you could hear a pin drop in my living room. You see, because all of a sudden, abortion was no longer abstract. It was no longer synthetic. It was real. And it was ugly. I believe that the legalized killing of unborn children is the defining moral issue of our day. This is our Goliath as a church. In nearly every church a month ago, during the Christmas dramas, there were little boys and girls on stages dressed like wise men and shepherds, but some of the little boys and girls weren't there because they had been aborted five and six years ago in many of these churches with the silent approval of their pastors. This is our great scandal. This is the defining moral issue of our day. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting it's the only issue. I thank God for Christians who are at the forefront of battles against sex trafficking, who are reaching out and ministering to the homeless, those addicted to drugs. I thank God that Christians are, are involved in all of those battles. I'm not suggesting for a minute that they are not important. But when 2,400 children die every day in the United States in these methods that I've described, this is clearly the defining moral issue of our day. Let me move to the fourth point, the fourth commonly held myth, and that is that abortion it's not a political issue, it's not just one of many issues, but it is a divisive issue. And that the role of the shepherd is to, is to protect the flock, to protect unity. Now, on one level, I'm very sympathetic to this. I do think this is the role of the pastor, is to protect the unity of the church, among other things that the pastor is responsible for. But I want to share a quick story with you, and this just took place this last July. I had the opportunity to teach at a conference, a pro-life conference, an overnight conference in Fort Wayne. Some of your students actually attended, I believe. And this was for high school and college-age students, and one young college student was there for his first time, about 130 students there, and he was there for the first time. 
He had been brought by a friend. Now, he hadn't been dragged there. I mean, he was there voluntarily, but he, it wasn't something he was passionate about. He was kind of going along with his buddy. Hey, I'll go to that. Let's, let's do it, right? So he came, but he got kind of fired up about it. And he left with a, a, a renewed determination to be a voice for the voiceless. Well, he picked his pastor as the first one to talk to. Because his pastor, for the time that he'd been at that church, several years, had not talked ever about abortion or spoken out, out against the evil of abortion. So as I understand the story, he respectfully went to his pastor and said, Pastor Bob, can you, can you tell me why don't, why don't we ever address abortion from the pulpit? Why don't we speak about this? Here's the pastor's response. Well, I've only been in this role for five years and I'm still trying to earn the trust of my people. Yeah, I see the mystified looks on your faces and you're right. What a horrible response. You see, I thought the role of the shepherd was to be first and foremost a sheep protector. And I thought that the way a pastor actually earns the respect or the trust of his flock is by tackling tough issues and defending the least of these from the abortionist's knife. But in his mind, he had it all backwards. Now, I don't want to be too hard on him. Our Bible colleges and our seminaries are not teaching our young men, our young pastorals, our, our pastors to be to be a biblically-minded, gospel-driven, ferocious defender of the unborn. It's not being taught in most of our schools. So I understand it. But I have to ask, with this kind of soft, listless, listless pastoral leadership, is it any wonder that we have legalized abortion five decades later? Could the heroes of Hebrews 11, David, Jephthah, Samson, Gideon, and so forth, who conquered uh, kingdoms, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames, who routed foreign armies, and get this, who administered justice. Could they have imagined today, thousands of years later, when shepherds called by God to protect the whole flock would instead surrender the most vulnerable from the flock to the abortionist's knife without so much as a whimper from the pulpit? Because that's what's happening in the vast majority of our churches in our land today. This is our great scandal. This is our great scandal. The pastor who remains silent is not protecting unity. If his church is divided over abortion, he is not protecting unity. He's protecting division. He's ensuring that his church will continue to be divided over this subject. No church should be divided over the immorality of dismembering unborn precious children. Driving division from that church driving division from the minds of his congregation should become his calling. And he should preach with all the fire of a reformer until every vestige of disunity is driven from that church. Until they can say as one body, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. You might recognize that language from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me move to number five. A fifth commonly held view, myth, even again, among brothers and sisters in Christ oftentimes, is that speaking out against abortion will turn people off from the gospel. Now, I'm going to give you a real short answer, and then I'll, I'll do my best to unpack this for you. Here it is. No, it won't. No, it won't. Assuming that that pastor is preaching with compassion and with passion, assuming that he's bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear on this subject, he will not turn anybody off from the gospel. In fact, he will turn them to it. Isn't that what drives people to the gospel is a recognition of their sinful condition? That's what brought me to Christ. What's being argued here in this fifth myth 
is that the church should remain silent as children die. That we should sentence those who've had abortions to suffer alone in guilt and shame. Now suppose we applied this mentality to other sins. Suppose we said, well, preaching against adultery might turn people off from the gospel. I mean, was John the Baptist responsible for turning Herod off from the gospel when he preached against his adulterous affair? I think not. Responding to abortion is first and foremost a gospel issue. That's the kind of issue this is for the church. It's a gospel issue. It's a loving your neighbor as yourself issue. The gospel of Jesus Christ should motivate us to tell people the truth so that they can find forgiveness or so that they can make right decisions so they won't later have to ask for forgiveness. To argue that speaking against abortion will turn people from the gospel reveals a lack of confidence in the power of the gospel and of the Holy Spirit to convict and to draw sinners to Jesus Christ. You see, it's the refusal to expose the sin of abortion in so many pulpits today that keeps people separated from the gospel. Those who do not acknowledge their sin, whatever that sin is, we're talking about abortion today, but this could be lying, gossip, lust, stealing, whatever. Those who do not acknowledge their sin will never acknowledge their need for Christ's saving grace. Paul said this in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Stephanie Gray, is a, uh, Stephanie Gray Connor is a very great pro-life uh, ambassador from, Can from Canada, and she said this, quote, we cannot be healed, and she's talking, of course, of the sin of abortion, we cannot be healed from the sin of abortion until we are forgiven, and we will not be forgiven until we repent, and we will not repent until we acknowledge that there's a need to repent. She's right, and this happens best when Christians and pastors speak truthfully about the sin of abortion. The church that refuses to stand against the sin of abortion has already abandoned the gospel that they claim to be protecting. The gospel demands that we love our neighbor as ourselves, but we cannot do that if we refuse to act when someone has a knife to his throat. The great heroes of the Christian faith understood this. Here's a great quote by Randy Elkhorn. Listen to what he writes. John Wesley actively opposed slavery. Charles Finney had a major role in the illegal Underground Railroad. D.L. Moody opened homes for underprivileged girls, rescuing them from exploitation. Charles Spurgeon built homes to help care for elderly women and to rescue orphans from the streets of London. Amy Carmichael intervened for sexually exploited girls in India, rescuing them from temple prostitution. There is no conflict between the gospel and social concern. And I would say, amen. We're, this, is, this is a faulty, false dichotomy that we have to choose whether or not we're going to speak up for the unborn or we're going to be a gospel-driven church. We should be doing both. These go hand in hand. Let me move to the final point. And that is that we often hear that speaking out against abortion will inflict more pain on those who have had abortions or have been responsible for them. Now, I want to respond to this kind of in two ways. First, let me say this. We mustn't be naive about this. Abortion impacts many women in our churches and many men as well. According to the Guttmacher Institute, which is kind of the polling arm, the research arm, if you will, of Planned Parenthood, no friends of the unborn, according to them, and by the way, I'm gonna share three stats with you. These are stats that are also confirmed at the National Right to Life site, okay? So we have agreement from both sides on these numbers, at least general agreement. According to the Alan Guttmacher Institute, 61 million babies have been aborted since 1973. 
So just do the math. There's an awful lot of mothers out there who have aborted and an awful lot of fathers who've been responsible for that. 24%, according to the Allen Guttmacher Institute, 24% of women will have at least one abortion by the time they're age 20, I'm sorry, age 45. In 2014, the last report we have from the Guttmacher Institute on this, 13% of women who had had abortions identified themselves as evangelical or Protestant Christians. 24% identified as Catholic. Now, no pastor that I know wants to inflict injury on those who have had abortions or have been responsible for them. I know Pastor Kent does not want to do that. And I certainly don't want to do that. But nothing inflicts more pain than pastoral silence. Because you see, when the church goes silent, those who have had abortions or have been responsible for them are left to assume one of two things. Either abortion is not so bad or the gospel is not so good, or both. I mean, think about it. If you've had an abortion, you've been in a church, say, for 20 years, and you've never heard your pastor talk about it, but he talks against other sins, but he never talks against abortion, you're left to assume, this must not be a big deal. God must be okay with this. Or maybe you're sitting in that church, and you're pregnant, and you're facing an unplanned pregnancy, and you're in a crisis, and you're thinking, must be okay. I got my appointment next Tuesday, must be okay. My pastor doesn't speak out against it. Or the opposite. You're left to assume that your sin, if you've had an abortion, is so bad that the pastor cannot even mention it from the pulpit. That you've committed the unpardonable sin, that you are the worst person in this church. These are horribly damaging messages that our silence is giving to those who've been impacted by abortion decisions. We must do better Paul says, speak the truth in love. So now I want to speak to you directly if you've had an abortion or you've been responsible for one because I have really, really good news for you. There is no sin that is so bad but that the grace of God through Jesus Christ is not greater still. If you have had an abortion, you do not need one more drop of grace than any other person in this sanctuary this morning. You have heard it said that the ground is even at the foot of the cross. I believe that. Now maybe I want to believe it because I benefit from that truth. But anybody here this morning who's a follower of Christ benefits from that truth, don't we? The ground is even at the foot of the cross. You don't need an excuse for your sin. You need what every person in this room needs, an exchange, Christ's forgiveness for your sinfulness. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to these words, 2 Corinthians 7.10, so sweet. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Have you been saddled with this for 5, 10, 15 or more years? Have you felt like damaged goods in the body of Christ? You can come out from the shadows because this forgiveness will leave no regret. John 8, 36. And oh, I love this verse. Very personal verse for me. Barbara, my wife, led me to Christ on Saturday night, September 10th, 1983. So I married her. We call it even. But Barb led me to Christ. And a couple of months after coming to faith in Christ, um, 21 years old, didn't know anything about the Bible, 
learning it for the first time. I'm in my apartment one day and I'm reading the Gospel of John and I come across John 8, 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I thought, that's what happened to me two months ago or whatever it was. That's what happened to me. I mean, it was like the, the, the verse just jumped off the page at me. And that can happen to you too. You can experience that same freedom, that same forgiveness. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, if that's all Christ did was forgive us of our sin, again, whatever the sin is, lying, gossip, stealing, lust, abortion, whatever, okay? If all he did was forgive us of our sins, he would be worthy of our praise for all of eternity, wouldn't he? He does more than that. You see, he doesn't just promise to forgive you of the sin of abortion. If you come to him in repentance, confess it as sin, acknowledge him as Lord, he doesn't just promise to forgive you of that sin, he promises to put you back together emotionally, to make you whole again, to restore you to kingdom usefulness. Are you damaged goods? Yeah, welcome to the club. We all are. But he doesn't see us that way because he sees us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And there's freedom in that. Now, how do I know this? Am I just making this up? No, Philippians 1, verses 4 to 6 couldn't be more clear. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the redemptive work, the, 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 uh, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, if that's you, you've had an abortion, you've been responsible for an abortion decision, I want to encourage you to come out from the shadows, to confess that first and foremost, of course, to, to Christ, but to confess that to a sister in Christ or maybe a brother in Christ, to find somebody. Now, you don't have to confess it to the whole world if you don't want to. Maybe in time you will want to. But come out of the shadows and find that, not just that healing and that forgiveness, but that acceptance. Now, I, I've only been in this church a handful of times. I've spoken here a handful of times. But I know your pastor very well. We're good friends. I don't know if he would admit that, but we are. You're among friends here. And let me just ask it. I'm just going to put the question to all of you. If somebody in this church has had an abortion, and no doubt somebody has, and they were to share that in a Bible study or on a Sunday morning for that matter, would they be warmly welcomed here? Now I want to hear from you on this. They need to hear from you on this, would they? Of course. Of course. Now why, when the gospel is such good news, why would we hide this? Now you're not hiding it in this church, but so many churches are. Why are our churches hiding this? Do we believe the gospel that we claim to believe or not? Is it really the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, as Romans teaches? Because if it is, then every pulpit in our land ought to be on fire against the evil, the demonic evil of abortion. And at the same time, holding out the word of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ for those who've been wounded, to say, look, there's forgiveness for you. There's complete restoration for you. Why has why the church gone silent? I want to leave you with a, a closing a closing question for you to ponder. And it's a question that, frankly, every pastor, every elder, and every professing Christian ought to be contending with. And it is simply this. Is our gospel really for everyone, as we so often hear, or is it only for those who are conveniently loved and protected? I think that's a million-dollar question, and I think the church needs to contend with that. Very quickly, before Pastor, or as Pastor Kent comes up, I want to invite you back tonight, uh, five to seven. Is that right? No, five to 
Yes, five to seven. This up. I'm going to be there. I will, really will show up. I just don't have a clue what time it is. Okay, five to seven right here. It's going to be set up with tables. We're going to eat dinner. But let me just tell you quickly what we're going to do. It won't be a sermon, okay? What this will be is a very interactive workshop where I'm going to help you make the case for life by appealing to basic human embryology to make the case for the full biological humanity of the unborn child. Then we're going to appeal to basic moral reasoning to make the case that the unborn child is a whole person, not just a human being, right? And then we're going to take those two things and we're going to apply them to the challenges and the, ob the objections that the other side brings to us. Things like, well, what about rape? What about the life of the mother? You're a man. You have no right to speak to the issue. These kinds of things that we all encounter. This is going to be super user-friendly, very practical. I promise you, you're going to get your money's worth. Is it free? It's free. You're going to get your money's worth. And it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're really going to have a good time, and I think you'll really enjoy it. I'm begging you to come back. I'm not too proud to beg. All right. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.